Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, as I uh, conclude this third part of the secrets of a productive Christian, I want to remind you that the Lord is, is really talking to his disciples in this passage in a very private way. This is not a public discourse. Uh, it was only for the ears of his disciples. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ today, then it is for your ears too, because every one of us need to know uh, what is being taught here in John chapter 15 concerning how to be a productive Christian. What, what does that mean? What do I look for? And so that's what we are confronted with here in, in this whole context. We, we know that our relationship with Christ is very important. It talks about union. We know that that leads to our communion with other believers, and that also leads to our disunion with the world. The closer we are growing in Christ, the more we're going to be disconnected from the world and its thinking and its trends and all those things. In this passage also, just trying to bring you up to date, on, is a visual picture of the vine, which is Jesus Christ, the vine dresser, which is the Father, the branches, which, which are the Christians, the disciples. And, of course, the main subject is abiding, and abiding means becoming an effective and productive Christian. And the result of abiding, of course, is fruit-bearing, Three degrees of fruit-bearing are seen in our passage. Uh, to bear fruit, uh, to bear more fruit, and then to bear much fruit. So that's progression. That's the progression of sanctification that God calls us to. Now, if there is no fruit, whatever, the branch is taken away, it says in our passage. The Father desires Christ's disciples to bear much fruit. And I've been saying that, uh, there is an element of secrecy in our passage because he is definitely talking to intimately to his disciples, and Jesus tells his disciples the secret of productive Christians. Now, just to bring you up to speed from where I was and where I'm going, the first secret of a productive Christian is the pruning of the Father, who is the vine dresser, verses 1 through 3. We see this, that there are two actions of the vine dresser. The vine dresser does something with the branch that isn't bearing fruit. In verse number two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then the vine dresser, which is the father, does something which the, with the branch that isn't bearing enough fruit. And it says in verse two, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So God, the father, comes in and cleans away Anything that is unwanted, unwanted growth, and that's what the vine dresser does. So the branches connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ will produce as much fruit as possible. And of course, in verse number three, uh, we see that it is implied that the word of God is the means by which the Father is performing the pruning on his disciples and you are, it says, and you are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. There are two kinds of branches mentioned, uh, those who produce fruit and those who lack the production of fruit. And of course, if you are a Christian today, then the sharp knife of the Father's pruning will be applied to you some way at some time in your Christian walk. And matter of fact, maybe you already have stories of how God has pruned you or uh, disciplined you in some way to bring you into more maturity. 
So the Christian has this inside knowledge that he uh, and she is a branch that is connected to the vine, Jesus Christ, and it is the will of God that his disciples bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. So if you want to be a productive Christian, the first point was that you must be pruned. That is the first secret. The second secret is that of a productive Christian is remaining or abiding in the sun. So the secret is that you cannot bear fruit on your own. It is not humanly possible for that to happen. It is Christ's work in you. In verse number 4 of John 15, our active responsibility is, of course, abide in me, which is an imperative, a command, given to those who are already branches. And, of course, it goes on to say, abide in me and I in you, in verse 4, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So when we are abiding, fruit comes quite naturally. The passive response of fruit bearing is the command is not to produce fruit, but it is to abide. The one who produces fruit is the Spirit of God living in us. All right? Christ is the one who produces the fruit. So in verse 5 it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So if we don't abide in Christ, disciples cannot, can't even produce even a bud of any kind of real fruit. And the consequences of bearing fruit is barrenness. So when this happens, when the Father comes and has to prune you or clean you by some, of, uh, some way in a disciplinary way, uh, he does it so he will sanctify you. And it could be through circumstances. It could be through some trial uh, it could be that he brings something into your life that is going to move you away from worldly think or thinking or some besetting sin that you need to put off and you've been uh, not putting it off. And then he draws you to Christ. He draws you to the Word of God again so the Word of God can sanctify you. He draws you to the fellowship of believers. He draws you, of course, also to prayer, to depend upon him more in prayer. So while he shows, uh, while he's doing that, he shows you your own heart and what's in it, and then he also humbles you under his mighty hand. So the Father chastens, chastens us not to harm us because he is good to us, but to make us more fruitful that we may be partakers of his holiness. So the second secret is you cannot bear fruit on your own, it is, is, it's not possible humanly. It is Christ's work in us. So our responsibility is to remain or to abide in Christ, and it is Christ who produces the fruit. Now that's kind of where I ended up. So today, uh, this Lord's Day, let's move on uh, to the third and fourth secrets of the, a productive Christian. But before I do that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, as we again look at your word, Lord, I pray your word would illuminate us and convict us where we need to be convicted. But I pray, Lord, it, all, it would also build us up and show us where we're at in our Christian walk. 
especially, Lord, in the area of being productive. We want to be productive, Lord. We want to see fruit in our life. That's what we want. And I pray, Lord, show us uh, those two things you've shown us already, but show us, Lord, the further uh, things that you are going to produce in our life. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the third secret of a productive Christian is found in verse number 7 and 8 is liberty in prayer. Look what it says. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and that will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, again, I, I must admit that when I read a passage of scripture like this, I am immediately astonished at what it says here. First, because of the element of the mystery surrounding prayer, that it is beyond our understanding. The difficulty really lies in the fact that I simply cannot reconcile God's omniscience and his foreknowledge and his sovereignty with the fact of prayer that we find taught all over the scriptures. Yes, there is an element of mystery, yet nothing is so plainly taught in Scripture that we are exhorted to pray, to come before the Lord. A second thing that comes to my mind is that Jesus is the Son of God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, it says, I and the Father are one. So the question is, why did Jesus have any need to pray? He was the Son of God, yet... The Son of God prayed much while he was on this earth. If you follow Jesus around in the Gospels, you'll find that he spent a whole lot of time with the Father in prayer, right? In fact, if, I, we, if you just go down right through the Gospel of Luke, you'll find that in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, he prayed for more healing the next day. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, he had a major decision the next day that was to pick his disciples. And the, and the Word of God says that he spent all night in prayer. You would have to ask, why did Jesus have to do that? Luke 19, verse 16, he prayed for food to be multiplied. Luke 9, verse 28, Jesus prayed earnestly before facing the cross. And then, of course, in Luke 11, 1, Jesus just prayed on a normal day. Nothing real real expedient was happening that day, but he prayed. And so why did Jesus pray? Well, here's a simple answer. Union and fellowship with the Father. That's what Jesus enjoyed in eternity uh, when he was with the Father, before he came uh, to this earth. He enjoyed that. So why should we pray? Well, the same reason. Union and fellowship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why we should pray. That should be the motive for our prayer. So if we see the very Son of God himself at prayer, we should also be at prayer. In other words, the scriptures teach that prayer is essential and vital to us. We really can't get away from it. Everywhere we are exhorted in scripture to do it, while considering abiding in Christ and his disciples being connected to him, Prayer naturally flows from being in union with Jesus Christ. The fruit of abiding in Christ is the exercise 
of prayer and the sense of the necessity of prayer. In other words, the nearer people are to God, the more they pray to him. Or I could say it in another way. As we abide in Christ, and the more we abide in Christ, the nearer we come to God, and the more we will see the necessity and and want to exercise prayer. So the fruit of abiding in Christ is not only the exercise of prayer and the sense of the necessity of prayer, but in our text, it is liberty in prayer. Just look at it again in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, wow, that is freedom and liberty that I never heard of. Uh, And when I read a passage of Scripture like that, some people say, well, how does that work out? Well, now, just imagine telling your children, if you've had children, uh, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, if you you have been a parent or you are a parent, you know very well there is an apparent danger in a statement like that. And the reason why is because there are many factors to consider before you would even say anything or come close to saying anything like that. You consider the age of the child, the maturity of the child, the responsibility, was the child, is the child responsible? Also, the ability of the child, both physically and mentally. What kind of character does the child have? Can you trust the child? And do you have a good relationship with the child? So all those factors come in. But there's another factor, too. Even if you said that to your child, how do you know if you'd be able to perform it? You You don't have that ability. Only God has that ability, right? And so... That's what we see here in this passage of Scripture that Jesus is making, in sense, he's making a statement and giving us a liberty that only his abiding disciples have. But if you notice in the text, there's two qualifications. The first qualification is found in verse 7, and it's this, abiding in Jesus. If you abide in me. Now, remember, I already covered that. And we're abiding in Christ by way of salvation and, of course, by way of sanctification or the pruning process of the Father. And so we are continuing to follow Christ, to remain in Christ, and ultimately we are bearing fruit as a disciple of Christ. So we are abiding in him. But second qualification is having the words of Christ abide in you. And my words abide in you, verse number 7. Now we cannot separate Christ from his word. Now, I, I, as it says in the Psalms, verse 138, verse 2, it says, I will bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. So the word of God and his name are equal to each other. They're the same thing. And so you and I, we have to consider that, first of all, the Word, uh, He is the Word of God, Jesus Christ. And second, in second place, if we call Jesus Master and we say we abide in Him, then we must do the things He says or we reject the truth which He teaches. See, Christ's words must abide in believers, both in their belief and their convictions 
and in their practice. Because we will practice what we actually believe. If you do, if you do not, then you are not in Christ. Because this will lead to a desire to obey Christ and a desire to please Christ when we abide in him and will ultimately lead to an increased understanding of God's will. Now, just for your information, did you know that a spirit-filled Christian and a word-filled Christian produce the same visible manifestations? If we're reading through Ephesians, we find in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, oh, there is an outward expression of joy where it says this, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then in the same passage, in Ephesians 5, there is an inward expression of joy where it says singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So here is a spiritual Christian. But if we go over to Colossians, we find the same exact thing. We find in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. That is a word-filled Christian. So a spirit-filled Christian and a word-filled Christian will pray with an increasing understanding of God's will. They go together. The Spirit of God works with the Word of God the Spirit of God being the author of the Word of God, never violates the Word of God. He always speaks and sanctifies us by the Word of God. So you can't separate those two things. And as we grow in the Word, we will grow in a greater understanding of the will of God. And so when we pray, we will pray in God's will. Now, quickly, take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, because in this passage we see the same exact teaching uh, from the apostle, but he's actually expanding it a bit, and he's giving us more information. It says in 1 John 5, 14, verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So here again in the scripture, it's pointing us that when we're growing in the Lord, when we're being led by the Holy Spirit of God, we are going to be praying more in the will of God. Now, let's just take, for example, a passage of scripture uh, you probably know well, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, where it's simp- it clearly says to us, And this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, is it God's will for for, uh, him to sanctify us? Absolutely. It's, It's his will. Now, so that means if you pray for sanctification to be more holy, to be more godly, you can be sure that God will hear your prayer and sanctify you. So that is a legitimate prayer. If you pray that God would reveal his love to you by his Holy Spirit, you can be certain that he will do it because it is God's will that we may know his love. Are you worried today about anything? Uh, 
in your life? I am. What do you do with that? Well, bring the wheelbarrow full of them, all your cares, and cast them on him, and he will lift your burden by giving you his peace in their place. That's what it says in Philippians. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes, surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So are you concerned that you do not love as you ought to love? Well, tell the Lord about it. Ask him to shed his love abroad in your heart, and he will do it. Are you struggling with some sin that entangles you and brings you down? Bring it before the Lord. Tell him your sin and your struggle. Be confident also when you tell him that it is God's will that you should be delivered from your sin. He will answer you, and the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all sin and unrighteousness, as it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. So all this is based on the word of God and the character of God. And even if an abider in Christ comes, comes and is not quite sure what he or she is asking, we'll also pray this, give not as I will, but as you will. So deep down in our hearts, we will only want what the Lord himself wills. So the abider in Christ will be mastered by holy, heavenly, and God-like aspirations that he has been a partaker, as First Peter, Second Peter tells us, of the divine nature. That is part of the growth that we experience as believers. And also, that means that we will not pray things that violate God's word, that go against what God has clearly already said. No sense asking God something that he said he won't answer. So two qualifications, if they're not active, if they're not present, that's abiding in Jesus and also his word abiding in you, then one must conclude not anyone can ask and bear the fruit of answered prayer. It is when we are linked to Christ's fullness that we feel the necessity of drawing from it by constant prayer. This liberty in prayer is only for abiders. It is not for those who have to beg to pray. It is not for those who absence themselves from prayer. It is not for those who offer every excuse why they don't pray. Nobody needs to prove to an abider in Christ the doctrine of prayer. Nobody. They already know that. An abider in Christ knows prayer is as, as much a necessity of one's spiritual life as breath is of one's natural life. 
That's what an abider does and comes to. So it is only the person who abides in conscious union with the Lord who has freedom of access in prayer. I'm not saying that they don't pray. I'm saying they don't have this kind of freedom where they they can ask anything. See, this liberty to ask anything is not the privilege of all. Only the abiding person has success in prayer. Now, anyone who prays has at times been on their knees knowing and wondering whether they're reaching heaven at all. I've been there. Have you ever not felt that you could not plead what you really desired? You want to pray, but as Charles Spurgeon says, the waters were frozen up and would not flow. If you desire liberty in prayer, and I know all real believers do, so that you may speak with God as a person that speaks with a friend, candidly, clearly, holding nothing back. Here's the way to do it. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It is the person who abides in conscious union with his Lord who has freedom of access in prayer. Now this should create a desire in your heart to begin to the practice and habit of prayer until it is your joyful habit every day and it becomes regular as breathing. Let's all make sure, let's all make sure that the church does not catch a spiritual coronavirus that attacks the spiritual breath of prayer that would suffocate its victims. Without prayer, there's no power not only in your Christian life, but in the assembly of believers. Now, here are some things that I believe develops in someone who is abiding in Christ and being sanctified. First thing is an abider develops a biblical, mature, and realistic view of prayer. An abider in Christ will never conclude that prayer is unproductive. They will never say prayer doesn't work. Abiders understand if God was to pledge to give whatever we asked, when we ask it, in exactly the terms we ask it, how can, how can we bear that particular burden and how then could God be God if he were subject to our whimsical prayers? We couldn't bear it and he wouldn't be God. A second thing I think abiders develop is Mature motives in prayer. Motive plays a large part uh, in the things that we ask in prayer. According to the epistle of James, we do everything but pray. We ask amiss, it says. That is, with a selfish, self-centered heart. So prayers like, Lord, make me rich. Make me famous. Let me have a good time. Make all my dreams come true. Please, Lord, give me a convenient, happy, satisfying, problem-free life. See, prayers 
like this, smacks of selfish heart desires and worldliness. This is what it actually says in the epistle of James chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not... Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. See, that's what James says. And so, in other words, a person prays like a worldly person that don't even know the Lord or or don't even know his word. But an abider in Christ is not in that category. They love Christ. They follow Christ. The word of God is growing in them. They're being sanctified. And so they know now and have a greater understanding of what prayer is all about. Now, sometimes people pray and offer prayers to change other people. Lord, change my wife, change my husband, change my boss, change my friend, change my neighbor. Instead, we should be praying, Lord, let me learn how to pray for those who persecute me and share the gospel with them. Give me that divine opportunity with them. Or we may pray, Lord, let me win the lotto. Instead, we should be praying, Lord, enable me to work so that I can eat and handle my finances so that I can give and trust you for the rest. Or somebody may pray, Lord, give me a good grade. Instead, we should be praying, Lord, enable me to be a hard worker and a disciplined student in study. So when I go take a test, I have a pretty good idea how well I'm going to do. So sometimes motives and reasons for our request are not wrong, but in the infinite mystery of things, the outcome sometimes seems to be no. There are several examples in Scripture of inadequate or inappropriate requests that were offered up by the disciples themselves. And they were offered up, may I say, in pretty much their immature state. They were not yet developed yet in what prayer actually accomplishes when when prayed correctly. For example, when James and John in Matthew chapter 20 uh, asked the Lord, Lord, can we sit on your left hand and your right hand? Remember that passage of Scripture? Well, how did the Lord answer them? He He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by the Father. So James and John and their mother had a wrong request, and the Lord would not grant it. And then, of course, another motive that they had, in James and John again, in Luke chapter 9, they actually had the motive of anger and revenge. It's when the disciples were denied travel permit through a Samaritan village, and James and John got angry about it. And this is what they said. They said in verse 53 of chapter 9, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So in each of those cases, God was answering a prayer that they weren't asking. He was answering the prayer of sanctification. You haven't grown to the place yet where you understand what you're saying. But you will. You abide in me. You continue in my ways. And you will. You will learn how to pray correctly. You will learn to ask anything. And it will be granted to you. Again, we see here in that passage, their request was wrong and Jesus said no. So just imagine. Just imagine if Jesus did grant that request. People would be using prayer as a means of revenge. Lord, zap that person. Right? Now, from time to time, you would hope prayer could be used in that way. In fact, you go into the Psalms, you find there is such thing as imprecatory prayers. Praying God's vengeance or judgment upon your enemy. But they're rare. But they're there. And you've got to be very careful when you use a prayer like that. So the answer the Lord gives in each of these situations shows that the Lord God is too loving a father to grant requests that are totally self-serving, patently materialistic, short-sighted, uninformed, or misinformed, and immature. He's not going to do it. All right. So when we understand that, then we're growing to be an abider in Christ in the realm of prayer. There's a third thing abiders develop, and it's this, trust in God's wisdom. Whatever the answer is from God, I'm satisfied with. And, you know, I was, uh, had read a book years ago uh, by an unknown a pastor, I really can't remember right now, uh, and after many counseling sessions with individuals who were troubled because their prayers weren't being answered the way they hoped they would, came up with a, a formula to help them, and he says if the request is wrong, God says no. If the request, if the timing is wrong, God says slow. If you are wrong, God says grow. If the request is right, the timing is right, and you are right, God often may say no, or God may say wait. It's not time yet. So it just gives a little bit of help uh, to be able to know that when we pray, the answer is not always yes. It's not always no. It could be somewhere in between. And sometimes we have to say, Lord, whatever you want in my life, however you want to answer this prayer, I'm waiting on the answer. And we should be anticipating an answer from God. We should. So so from this day forward, brethren, there must be a radical change in what we believe about the Father in prayer and what we are to pray for. God will only give what is good to his children. Physically, he will give daily food, clothing, shelter, work to supply your needs. Spiritually, though, he will want to conform you to Christ. So that may mean prayers for the restraint of evil words or the cleansing of corrupt wishes or the removal of impure desires, or the removal of revengeful thoughts. It may be a prayer to help you love your neighbor and help 
you love your enemies and bless those who dis, dis, despite, uh, despitefully use you and persecute you. So those are prayers all in the will of God. But there is a, another development that happens with abiders, and it's this. They delight to pray. They can't wait to pray. Matter of fact, prayer to them is like a festival. They cannot wait to come. It's like Psalm 37, verse 4 tells us, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, of course, you can't reverse that. You have to delight in the Lord first. And then when you do, then he gives you the desires of your heart. But believe me, if you are delighting in the Lord, the desires of your heart is going to be the will of God. It's going to be leaning towards that way. That's definitely for sure. So cheerfulness and delight is our part. Joy has a way of turning the soul to the Lord. The Lord doesn't want us to come to prayer with dullness or lumpishness. It's an old Puritan word. All right, those two things are unacceptable before God, and we have to be careful that we don't come that way. Dullness uh, has really no force to carry the prayer to heaven. It could be because it's like shooting arrows. You shoot the arrow, instead of hitting the target, it, it drops right in front of you. It never gets anywhere. And then also lumpishness really speaks of an unwillingness that God should hear us because prayers are offer, often offered in unbelief. I don't really believe what I'm praying. I'm, I'm not at that point yet. And so those are unacceptable. See, are we more skillful in making excuses than skillful in the duty of prayer? Are we more uh, skillful in making excuses than we are, of course, in Prayer, that is definitely something we have to be careful about. There's, uh, often there's no excuses when sin calls us, but when prayer calls us, we have all these reasons why we can't. So does our delight in prayer and spiritual things outdo our delight in outward things? Let us delight in prayer because you know why God loves a what? cheerful giver if we're going to give god prayer let's do it with a cheerful heart and where there is great familiarity with god especially those who are abiding in christ there will be great delight delight in prayer is the way to gain assurance we ought to be coming to the lord with delight so you have to ask yourself what is the character of my prayer life what place does it have in my daily routine? What place does the public weekly prayer meeting have in my weekly schedule? Now, we're doing a lot of things now on Zoom. I think that's one good thing that came out of all this COVID stuff, is that Zoom, you don't have to drive anywhere. You don't have to fight traffic. You can do it from your bedroom, from your living room, turn on your computer, and you can see people face-to-face, -face, and we go through the prayer sheet, and we pray together. We break up in rooms. Uh, if a husband and wife comes, usually a husband and wife is linked up, and men and women are separated to pray together in those rooms, and 
Uh, we pray. Everybody should be linking in on Zoom to pray. We do it on a Wednesday twice a month and on Friday twice a month. And just check the schedule. We like to see some new people show up on prayer and pray for the request uh, that we email to you and other requests that you have and you want to bring up in the particular groups. We need to be praying. Where there, where there is prayer, there is power. And so we need, as a church, to pray. So this third secret of disciples who remain and abide in Christ is liberty in prayer. Don't you want that? To be able to have that kind of freedom in prayer? Now, I pray that this portion of Scripture would have at least whet your appetite for this liberty and success in prayer. But it leads me to the last point, and it's this. The fourth secret of productive, a productive Christian is that of abiding in Christ produces real results. Don't we want results? There's some pragmatism here going on. We do want to see results. I want to know I'm growing, right? I want to know that I'm walking with the Lord and I see something. So we have to look for fruit. So the results of abiding in Christ, to abide in Christ is to remain in constant union and fellowship with him. And being in constant fellowship with the Lord produces definitely real results. Well, look at verse number 7, back to John chapter 15, verse 7. What's the first result? It's effective prayer. Your prayers are answered, all offered according to God's will. Your prayers are answered. That's what we want. I want answered prayer. A second thing in verse number 8, God is glorified. Look what it says. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So there is something that is tangible that I am bringing glory to God and know it, that the spiritual fruit bearing includes bringing glory to God by our lives and the Father being glorified by answered prayer. And then, of course, the Father is glorified by producing abundant fruit in the life of a true disciple. And then the Father is glorified uh, in those who live lives that reproduce obedience. They remain in, uh, actually remaining in Christ or abiding in Christ is conditional upon obeying. For if you notice in verse number 10 of John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Third thing would be a life motivated by love. Verse number 9 and 10, it says this, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. See, a life motivated by love. What kind of love? God loves me then I am also can express love to others because God loves me. And if that doesn't bring in my heart a delight, I don't know what else could, be, could delight your soul. Also, verse 16, continual fruitfulness. Look what it says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So, continual, ongoing fruitfulness that is being sent ahead of you into eternity. And then notice in verse 11, continual joy that will be yours in abundance. It says in verse 11 of John 15, these things I have spoken to you 
so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be may be made full. When the Spirit of God dwells in the heart, love and joy are the first fruits. The great, the, what greater joy can come to one that knows that he is loved by the Son of God even as the Son is loved by the Father? See, joy is not a mere comfortable emotion. Joy is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. And everybody is looking for this kind of joy, but you know what? The only ones who could have it is those who are in Christ. The only ones who maintain it are those who abide in Christ. Your world can be falling apart. The world could be falling apart, and your world could be too. And God allows you to maintain a joy that no one could take away. No one could take it from you. That's the kind of joy we want. We want to live there. The grace of our Lord Jesus is also displayed in calling us friends. Look at verse 15 of John 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So what is Jesus doing? He's telling us everything we need to know on this side of eternity to make it through and to make it through with peace and joy and to know that when we close our eyes in death, we're going to be in his presence because Jesus lays down his life for you and me in death and bears our condemnation and judgment for sin so we can be made right with God, so we can be at peace with God. And there is no greater peace to know that right now you can know you're at peace with God through Christ Jesus. So this fourth secret of disciples who remain and abide in Christ is more fruit. Look for fruit. Yieldness to Christ. No longer yielding to sinful desires and habits of unrighteousness. Walking in the Spirit. Being Filled with the Spirit and being filled with the Word of God all go together. And you know what? This joy that we receive, this Christian joy is supernatural joy. On God's side, this joy is, God is the source of it. And then, of course, it is mediated to us through Christ by the Holy Spirit, where it says in John 17, verse 13, but now I come to, to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. On the man's side of joy, of course, it comes by the word of God. In John 1.4, it says, 1 John 1.4 says, And these things we write so that you, our joy may be made complete. God's concerned about our joy. He wants us to be joyful. He wants us to be delighted in him. And when we are, you can rest assured those are fruits and proof that you truly are his disciples and you are abiding in Christ. And believe me, when you're there, you don't want to step out of there. You want to stay there because when you are there, there's no better place to be on this planet when you're in that place. So joy really also supports and aids our physical well-being. Christians are to have a joyful heart, and a joyful heart is beneficial to our physical health and also our spiritual health. What does it say in Proverbs? A joyful heart is good medicine. 
and a broken spirit dries up the bones. See, joy is beneficial for every single part of your life, your relationships, your health, physical, spiritual, everything. So one had, person had, given, had given, a, given a definition of Christian joy, and they said this, is it, it's an emotion springing from a deep, deep down confidence that God is in perfect control of everything. In fact, there is no event or circumstance that can occur in the life of a Christian that should diminish that Christian's joy except sin. So if you have no joy, look for sin. If you have no peace, look for sin. Because if no one can take it away, you must give it away. Satan wants to rob it from us. So by way of applications, we must keep constant contact with Jesus Christ. We cannot walk away even for a second. We cannot do this unless we deliberately take steps in our life to do it. In other words, arrange your day around abiding in Christ, your prayer time. Don't do it when you're falling asleep. Do it when you're awake. Do it when your soul's delighting in God. Also, your Bible reading. Do that along with prayer. It, it informs your prayer. It gives you things to pray for. It shows you what the will of God is. Also, meditation. Meditate upon what you are hearing. You know, today we have opportunity to listen to, you know, 15, 20, 30 sermons a week. Don't do that. You know why? You don't sit at a table and gorge yourself until it's coming out of your ears. No, you sit down, and when you're full, you, you push away from the table. It's the same thing spiritually. Don't gorge yourself with information even if it's good information, because you know what? Your, your mind cannot synthesize and digest that stuff. Listen to a sermon and digest it spiritually and let it grab your soul. Or the old preachers would say, let it grab your gizzard and squeeze until you get it. See, that's what we ought to be doing in planning in our life. Plan fellowship with believers. Plan to do good deeds so there's, in other words, there's never a chance to forget Christ, never, in your daily routine. And believe me, you will understand and will walk as an abider in Christ. That's my prayer for you and myself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again because you are good to us. Lord, you answer us according to your will. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn to pray according to your will. Lord, let us be those people, people who have liberty in prayer and know that whatever we ask, you will answer us because it is in the will of God. And I pray, Lord, give us the ability to plan our day so we would not forget you, so we would not forget what we're learning, that we would meditate upon it until it gets into our mind and our soul and changes us and transforms us and sanctifies us into the image of Jesus Christ. And I pray this this morning in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.